You're listening to ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Lifelong Learning, featuring thought leaders in the field of continuing medical education. Lifelong Learning is presented in cooperation with the Alliance for CME, the International Association of CME Professionals. Here's your host, Senior Vice President of Educational Strategy for Prova Education, Lawrence Sherman, FACME, CCMEP. The profession of continuing medical education continues to evolve. Assessing quality in the provision of CME is vital. Doing so while taking into account the needs of the various stakeholders and particularly the individualized needs of the learners is critical. If done correctly, it can improve competence and performance to hopefully optimize patient outcomes. This is uppermost in the minds of those who develop CME. Here to discuss quality and performance improvement in CME is Director of the Duke University Medical Center Clinical Research Institute and Distinguished Professor of Medicine and Cardiology, Dr. Robert A. Harrington. Welcome, Dr. Harrington. Thanks for having me today. I'm pleased to be here. And we're really happy to have someone of your stature and and involvement in medical education discussing these issues that are very important to us. Well, these are critical issues, as you've indicated. You know, there's been a societal shift in how both society and the, more specifically the medical profession views continuing medical education, and this is a good time to talk about what some of those changes are. Well, that's terrific. Well, then let's get right into it. The overarching theme of this series is lifelong learning, and in fact, that's what this series is called, and really how that relates to CME. You've been involved in CME activities for many years. What changes have you seen from when you started until now? CME traditionally, well, let's really even back up and put the bigger framework around this, Lawrence, that why is CME important in general? And this hasn't changed over the years. The reality is that clinicians spend the minority of their time in their undergraduate medical education, four years, perhaps a bit longer in their graduate medical education time frame, that time where they're interns, residents, fellows, et cetera, maybe anywhere from three to seven years but ultimately spend the bulk of their time in the continuing medical education space. That's all of the time after they graduate from their residency or fellowship program until the time that they stop practicing. That may be anywhere from, you know, 20 to 40 or more years. So there's this this enormous period of time that we have where we really need to engage in ongoing learning so that we can better practice our profession, offer better care to our patients, keep up with the latest changes and innovations. And so if you think about the evolution of continuing medical education, it's evolved from what I would call teacher-centric to now moving to a paradigm of learner-centric. And let me explain what I mean by that. In a teacher-centric way, it was the teacher who decided what it was that needed to be conveyed on a topic on a discussion of a therapy or a new technology, and it was the teacher who came up with what that program was and then delivered that program, be it in written materials or spoken materials, live meetings, archived meetings, but it was very teacher-centric. And there was little active measurement being applied to whether or not the learner was actually getting something out of that activity. In fact, there's a phrase that people used to use about CME activities, and it was really people in the audience, or, you know, a more colloquial way to say it was butts in the seat. How many people came to your program? And that was your marker of success, but not really looking at the educational transmittance. Now we've moved to a learner-centric view of CME, where what we're interested in is what does the learner need, and how might he or she get that need met? 
And then, taking that a step further, the metric becomes, did we meet the need? Did the learner have that gap filled? And how do we measure that? Is it by better patient performance, meaning better patient outcomes? Is it just by increased evidence of some sort of change in prescribing patent or utilization of a technology? All of those things are under discussion, but I think the key differentiation is moving from the teacher really deciding what needs to be taught to the learner deciding what he or she needs to learn. Well, I think that's a great response, and in fact, it almost echoes what I say when people ask me that very question, so I couldn't agree with you more. One of the things I like to say is, if you can't measure it, you can't treasure it, and for all too long in CME, we weren't measuring the right thing, so I agree with you a thousand percent. Yeah, we we were really just measuring, you know, who was in the room, and now what we really need to understand is, are people actually learning something? And the only way you're really going to know that is that you have to test it, and you have to have data, and you have to be able to quantify it. And I like your phrase, if you can't measure it, you can't treasure it. I think that that says a lot about where this field is moving to. I mean, traditionally, if you think of a symposium at the ACC meeting or the AHA or ESC, as I'm sure you've sat through many of them and you've been faculty for many of them, you look in the room and you see a full audience. But what percentage of that audience really is the right audience? And what do you know about that audience? And I think we've missed it through the years. And to your point, now we're getting it. So it really is a great time to be in CME. Do you agree? I agree. And I think the other thing that we've learned over the years is there's been much more research done, as you know, into adult learning and how do adults learn and trying to take advantage of the different media available. I mean, it traditionally was that you showed up and you saw a PowerPoint set of slides and that was your mode of learning. Now we're realizing that people learn, and particularly adults, we've all evolved our style of learning for what we do best. And for some people, it might be sitting in a lecture hall and listening to a uh, presentation. For other people, it might be listening to you know a radio show like this or a podcast. For other people, it might be reading a article or a monograph. For still others, it might be going to a website and getting both the visual learning and the auditory learning at the same time. So one of the things that's really nice these days is being able to package learning opportunities in different ways that appeal to the different ways that people learn. I think that's right, and I think one of the buzzwords we're hearing is integration, integration of platforms, integration of content, integration of media to really reach the total number of learners, not just once, but as many times as they want to and need to participate in the education. Well, and how they like to get it at different points in time. As you know, there's a big emphasis right now on point-of-care learning, and so if I'm seeing a patient right now and I'm faced with something that, you know, I just don't remember. Let me look that up. If I can step out of that patient's room and access on my BlackBerry or access on my iPad a question about that particular disease state, for example, and I can get put in front of me, you know, a minute, two minutes, five minutes of education, I ought to be able to get credit for doing that in a CME way And then when I get home that evening, maybe I'm reflecting upon my day and say, you know, I'd like a little more. And maybe I can go to the web. Maybe I can pull out a, you know, a recent journal article. But there ought to be different ways at different times of my day to also tailor my learning. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Lifelong Learning on ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Lawrence Sherman, and joining me to discuss quality and performance improvement in CME is Dr. Robert A. Harrington, Director of the Duke University Medical Center Clinical Research Institute and Distinguished Professor of Medicine and Cardiology. 
Moving on, Dr. Harrington, I know you're involved in a really innovative performance improvement CME initiative. Can you tell us a little bit about that? You've sort of captured the essence of it in your question and that I have been involved as a course director in a performance improvement CME, also known as PICME, that is being done through the American College of Cardiology. I play an educational role within the American College of Cardiology. And this is a specific program that is designed to measure gaps in learning around the acute coronary syndrome world and then tailor the education based on those gaps and then really interestingly measuring the outcome of that learning to see how people have responded to that learning or educational opportunity. And let me just expand a little bit on that and give you some specifics. So the American College of Cardiology is uniquely positioned to do some of these novel PICME practices for a couple of reasons. The key reason is that the American College of Cardiology is a repository for an enormous amount of practice-based data in this country. They have a long-standing maintenance of a database dedicated to cardiac catheterization and percutaneous intervention, the so-called NCDR program. They have a large database maintained on acute coronary syndrome patients. And so what we're able to do is ask a set of questions about evidence-based care in the acute coronary syndrome world. These are things like, are you dosing antithrombotic therapy appropriately? Are you ordering cardiac rehabilitation for your patient that suffered a myocardial infarction? Basic questions that have high level of evidence surrounding their use in terms of, hey, these are things we ought to be doing, so-called class one guideline recommendations. Going then into a practice and measuring those gaps. So if your practice is participating in this registry, we'll go into your practice data and actually see, are you doing these? What frequency are you doing these with? How do you compare with national standards? How do you compare with best practices? And then designing a series of both web-based, case-based practices on the web, as well as some live educational opportunities to focus in on the specific gaps that you have, and then making the loop back to, you know, at some later point in time, remeasuring, resampling from that practice, how you've changed your practice in response to that learning opportunity. I'm very excited about this. We've launched the program's I have led one of the kickoff live programs myself where we had the opportunity to really look in depth at a practice in Lynchburg, Virginia and design some learning around that particular uh, practice's gaps. And now we'll wait and see how they respond over time. So a terrific idea. It's launched well and we're very excited to see where this leads. Let me ask you a little bit of a touchy subject kind of question. What are your thoughts on the role of commercial support in CME, you know, pharmaceutical device manufacturers providing the funding? That seems to be a hot topic always. Well, let me make my own disclosure here before we go any further, Lawrence, is that I run a large clinical research group, as you've indicated, on campus at Duke. About 60% of the funding of that research institute is through private sources, the other 40% being through professional society, foundation, and government sources. So I have a great deal of interest in understanding the issues in relationships with industry. All of my own, both personal as well as research director relationships, are listed publicly on the web in quite some detail. So let me say a couple of things then regarding education. I am absolutely in favor of relationships with industry when it comes to education, and I'll delve into that a bit more. Number two, 
I believe in the notion of transparency in those relationships so that people can understand what those relationships are. Number three, I absolutely believe that there are a couple of key places where the honors broker perspective might be applied. And one of those key places in education that I believe the concept of honors brokers can be applied is these relationships between the pharmaceutical company or device companies and medical education. I do think there needs to be firewalls, important firewalls, between the funding source and the people developing content. I think the people developing content can come from universities, they can come from the clinical community, they can come from the professional societies. The universities and the professional societies seem to be a unique place where those relationships can be, can be firewalled. I think that while the pharmaceutical industry in many ways might be considered as having an obligation to contribute to the education of clinicians, it's obvious that they also have a financial conflict or a financial bias which makes their involvement in the content just something that really can't happen. And so what we need is systems that allow the pharmaceutical industry to invest so that their products, their technologies are being talked about, are being put forward to the medical community in a wise and responsible way. But we need people who are independent of those companies, who can develop the content, who can make the measurements, who can deliver that content that really don't have anything to do with the companies other than being sort of the custodians of the funding, if you will, getting paid for the work that they do. I do think that there's a balance here. I don't think in society we've sort of reached maybe the optimal balance, but I'd hate to see us say, as some people have done, just no to commercial support for CME. I don't think that's the right choice. I do think it's important that we get the marketing advertising piece of CME out and done with. I mean, we should not be using CME as a vehicle to promote products, but we should not deny the fact that we have to learn about products. We have to learn about medical technologies. And I frankly think that the companies that make those have a societal responsibility to contribute to the education. Well, I'd like to thank my guest, director of the Duke University Medical Center Clinical Research Institute and distinguished professor of medicine and cardiology, Dr. Robert A. Harrington. Thanks for spending time with us this week on Lifelong Learning. Lawrence, thanks for having me. You've been listening to Lifelong Learning on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals, featuring thought leaders in the field of continuing medical education. Lifelong Learning is presented in cooperation with the Alliance for CME, the International Association of CME Professionals, and is hosted by Lawrence Sherman.